welcome to the second part of uh, this fantastic conversation which is really a real life example of teachers breaking taboos we are continuing this episode in a conversation with Iqbal Jaj also the host of Hi Ye Jawani so Iqbal welcome back to this part of the conversation thank you i think increasingly we are living in a world that is so sexualized right and i also feel that whatever is happening in the body to the body is also so sexualized right like if you gain weight then people must find you attractive if you lose yeah. weight then people might find you attractive so it's always through a lens of somebody's desire yes. uh, but not the body by itself and isn't it almost ironical then that you know our world tends to sexualize everything that is related to the body or you know uh, interaction with somebody else and yet we speak so little about sex and sexuality isn't isn't it uh, you know now of course somebody can turn around and say oh, well if the world ran on common sense then we would be a very different world <laughs> yes, but i'm very curious that you know when you set out to engage with schools or parents this realization that we live in a highly sexualized world both online and offline even sometimes i feel you know just looking at photographs and sometimes when you're looking at photographs and the way young people are posing you know that moment where you spoke about how sometimes we play things like the kitchen household or the teacher in class is in many ways our attempt to replicate what we see around us and uh, you know sometimes when i'm looking at even like photos of you know my own nephews and nieces around me and i see the way they are standing uh, sometimes i think that because i i try and go back into my own childhood when perhaps i had so much less access to the internet and influencers and unlimited content online i don't remember standing like that as a child yeah right yes, but yes, today so right. you can see how the body is positioned in in a certain yeah. camera frame and when so much is sexualized around us and we're inheriting that culture our children and young people are inheriting that culture what is it that still stops us to talk about sex and sexuality what what is underlying that fear i'm very curious about that I think with most people it is a fear that somewhere the sexual instinct is something that needs to be restrained and kept and sort of kept so tightly covered because if it's let loose probably all hell will get let loose which is also true i mean it's just not a notion because when your emotions when you are say sexually aroused and with this increasingly sexualized world as you're saying that kind of arousal is not very far to you know difficult to seek so at that point of time you may not think about the consequences whether it's in a in terms of a relationship or anything else and i think that is one major fear it's the biggest fear factor in people they think that the less they know and the less it's talked about the better it is because i think that's the way they grew up they grew up without knowing anything and they kind of feel that we managed and i think every society looks upon the previous generation as being a nobler one and the current one being more permissive and lacking in values and and all that kind of stuff so i think that's the biggest fear 
that uh, they won't know what to do with this. If you tell them what it is, what power it holds, they just don't know, won't know what to do with it. To some extent, I can understand because maybe now I'm at that point where my children are also grown up and so I'm at a more of a, a vantage point where I can see both sides, both perspectives, probably a little more objectively than if I were in the throes of either stage at that point of time. Parents, therefore, feel that we need to not tell them anything because they won't know how to behave responsibly. Whereas I feel that if we do tell them and we tell them that there are these XYZ consequences, then at least they will know what the consequences are rather than getting into a relationship which, which as these school teachers themselves told us, you know, that they all know it. They're all into relationships. Sometimes I think it's just like pulling the wool over our eyes as parents. We don't want to face it because the kind of questions that the, the young children would ask, I had never thought of talking about the topic of pornography, for example. But here I was in this class, ninth boy wrote it down in a note. When I came back home, I read it, how to stop addiction to porn. So I was totally taken aback and I said, now what do I do with this? I, I didn't even have the faintest idea. So I just went back and I, in fact, threw it back at them. And I said, you know, somebody said yesterday this. So can you tell me? Because I don't know the answer. And it didn't take them a second to say, geo band karna. And for a moment, I was wondering what I said, what is geo? And then they laughed at, you know, and kind of thought, oh, you don't know anything and told me, geo is free internet, and we can see everything on it. And then I realized that all these children whom I see huddled up, you know, boys peering over a phone, and I used to think they're playing Mario or something like that, <laughs> was actually probably watching porn. So if we don't talk about it, look at the ideas that they're going to get. I discussed this with a, a young uh, colleague, I think she'd done a course on pornography and gender as part of her graduate training. So she told me about how a lot of these pornography videos have a strong element of violence in them, which I wasn't aware of. I thought it would be more of, you know, just a voyeurish, the voyeur in you. And then I realized that if you're continually watching that, then that's the expectation you're going to have. One of yourself and the other of the body that you're, because you're only seeing that person as a body then. And then what are you going to be doing to that body and what are you going to be your expectations? It was absolutely horrifying. And I thought that, no, this needs to be talked about. That's why we need to talk about respect, respect for ourselves, our bodies, and for other people's bodies. And we can only talk about consent if we learn to respect another person. So that's why I think it's so very important to talk about it. 
Absolutely. And you know, if you ask me, I I don't even need to watch porn to have unrealistic expectations of body or, you know, what sex should be. I just have to watch some scenes out of Bollywood, which is just so accessible. Right. And then you watch that and you see those highly trained or manipulated bodies in front of you or, you know, certain romantic, intimate scenes. And you're like, huh, maybe that's that's what it is. And I, I think even for me to recognize that's not how it is in real life. I think I was already like 26 or 27. And I was like, huh, really? So that was very interesting for me. I want us to talk a little bit about what is the role? You know, I, I feel that when we are working with young people on an issue which is often under the carpet is, you know, there's a lot of stigma and taboo, like, you know, the the, the person who said, Inko sab pata hai ki gande hai, or you know, and just for our other listeners who don't understand Hindi, it means it literally translates into these people know a lot of things, they're dirty. It's interesting, right? That knowing is equated with being yes. dirty. In fact, not knowing is actually so dangerous, right? But um, that's the that's the notion they hold that if you don't know, you know, though, and especially in terms of girls, right? She's innocent. So innocent translating into virginal, pure, blah, blah, all that. Absolutely. So I want to have this conversation, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Iqbal, is what does it take to be a sexuality trainer when one lives in a social cultural context? And I don't think it's really about India. My sense is that even if you're in New York, you might meet the same level of obstacles, but maybe different degrees, you know, different magnitudes. But because this is a taboo subject, even for adults to talk about, right? And then we want to talk about it to young people. Of course, for me, I feel it makes sense to add this layer hugely along with all our conversations around child rights and youth rights. But it continues to be a taboo subject. What does it take to be a sexuality trainer then? Because there is, a, there is an aspect of skill and then there is an aspect of an attitude a certain kind of, you know, some of the softer aspects that are needed to navigate the space. And the reason I ask you this is a lot of our listeners are people who are interested in the various spectrums of training and facilitation. So perhaps a lot of them are also sitting with this question of, oh, you know, being a sexuality trainer, unknown territory, what if I want to be one? So I want you to talk about it from your own experience there are these hard skills aspect, like you said, you know, you did this course from Tarshi. And then there are many other dimensions to it. If you could talk about that. I really don't know if I'll be able to verbalize uh, very effectively what you've asked me to. One, what does it mean to be a sexuality education trainer is what, like my husband, when he t- talks to people and, you know, they'll say, what are you doing nowadays? He says she does adult education. <laughs> and then, you know, people, nobody dares to ask another question after that because it's like, so it's it's quite funny. And uh, I am often amused at myself and uh, I kind of laugh about this because I was considered to be in my, say, amongst my peers, my cousins and uh, classmates and all and throughout college, education, university, everything, the world's biggest prude, you know. So so for me, at this age, you know, when I'm like well into my 60s, to be talking to young people, I think it's it's kind of ironical and I kind of, I am actually enjoying it. I don't fear those labels, maybe. 
that would be attached to me now. I think that little bit of maturity has come in. And I feel that I can now openly talk about it. Because one, you know, people think that, oh, we are going to tell them how to do sex and, you know, things like that. And we are going to open up the gates to hell for them, which is not that at all. It's actually just telling them that here is something that can be beautiful, that can be the base of a wonderful relationship. And just don't take it in terms of something that you toy around with. You are going to experiment, but then there's an element of responsibility attached because it's with another person and it's with another's body. And I think when I go into the classroom, for me also I see them as all young people who have questions and, you know, they all behave sometimes very rowdily. We generally ask for girls and boys separately. And we as in, again, my friend who works with me, one or two of us, and mostly it's been that I would be given the boys to talk to. And she would say, I prefer talking to the girls. And the boys will be endlessly shoving each other, pushing each other. If someone dares to ask a question, they would be tired of uh, hoops and all kinds of noises made and teasing that boy and things like that. And we're given just that space of 45 minutes by the school. So a lot of time would actually get spent in trying to quieten them down. Enough to be able to at least put one's own point across. So that was the, the first thing. And um, I realized that this noise is also coming from their own feeling of embarrassment, possibly, and they don't know how to, you know, they, they can't say we're embarrassed. So the best way to deal with it is by not showing any embarrassment on my part. Because I realized that the minute I show any sense of embarrassment or hedging around an issue, and you know, they're all teenagers, they're just waiting to trip you up. Because they don't see me when I come into the space as their friend, they see me as I look like an elderly person. I'm dressed like an elderly person. So I must be one of those who's going to come and give them some kind of a moral lecture because that's what they used to. So they are going to wait and say, okay, you know, maybe this is just a trap. Let's just catch her at some point of time. So one has to be alert to, to that as uh, I mean, in terms of some of the aspects of being a facilitator is that. And then try as much as one can. Um, there are times when, as I said, that it hasn't been possible to keep my empathy levels up so that I don't get annoyed by the endless noise that they're going to be making. And then, as I said, the questions that we always take from them is, you know, with this thing that they're not going to, there's no need for them to mention their names or anything at all. So we maintain, I, I personally, I maintain the strictest confidence in that sense. So even the next day when one goes back into the classroom to talk to them, it's speaking in general and saying that the questions that someone said was this, this. And if someone does put down another, then at that point of time, I kind of do, 
I might even snap and say very clearly that that kind of behavior is unacceptable because we've got to, as I said, respect one another. I don't know if this answers your question really. No, it does. Absolutely. And I was just thinking that how nuanced does this work because there is sex, there's gender, there's sexuality. And then, you know, within sexuality, there is the entire spectrum that again, you know, uh, we don't want to fully embrace or we are not yet ready to talk about and how critical, therefore, these conversations are because, like you said, uh, and, you know, I'm going to repeat that again, is being a sexuality trainer, the perception is that we might end up teaching young people how to have sex, but that's not what this is about. This is about heightening their sense of awareness and therefore a more responsible, you know, behavior towards oneself and other. Like you spoke about, I respect myself and everybody around me. So that's that's very interesting for me. You know, I, I feel that while there could be, you know, schools in India could be opening up their doors for a 45-minute conversation. I'm curious, this young person is still spending a lot of time in different environments with their peer groups, at home. So if we really have to succeed at this work, what kind of an interaction needs to happen between, you know, the ecosystem that the child is in? So there is the sexuality trainer. There could be a school that has very reluctantly but curiously opened the doors for this conversation. And then there is the parent at home. Each one of these stakeholders, you know, who can significantly impact that young person is sitting with their own preferences, biases, and prejudices. So how does one, you know, facilitate the space as a sexuality trainer? I think that's a tightrope walk, actually, that one is going to go through. Because, again, it sounds, you know, it's very utopian, I think, to even, for uh, that's what I realized, for schools to open up the space because they don't seem to be ready to. As I said, that's why we use the word menstruation to get in. You know, it's just like getting a foot in the door because they say, oh, okay, you're going to talk about menstruation? Yeah, fine, please come in, please come in. Because, you know, then it comes up as a checkbox ticked on their list of good practices done by the school. So we said, why not, you know, play along with them So uh, <laughs> and bring in our own agenda, as you said. And again, you know, as for parents, it would really be good if at some point of time there could be something like, you know, a parent-teacher meeting or when the parents are called and we tell them that these are conversations that we'd like to, we are engaging in with your children. Actually, I'm dreading the idea and at the same time it entices me as well. Because from one point of view, it seems that it's important to start a conversation with the parents and tell them, as I'm telling you now, and as as you reinforce, that we are not here to teach them how to do sex, but we are going to teach them responsible behavior. And that as parents, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, your children are indulging in all kinds of experimentation. And so, therefore, you need to know about it. And you need to know that we are sensitizing them about responsibilities. And maybe parents would understand, hopefully, because they would see also their children's interests 
I mean, the, the idea is is not to liberate their children in the sense of, you know, that any unshackling of and freedom to do any kind of behavior, but to engage in responsible behavior. So that tomorrow, you know, for example, if a child, if nowadays, if a, a boy or anybody harasses, say, a girl, and if it's in school, what's going to happen? The first thing is the parents are going to be hauled up and they're going to be brought. And I can well understand how ashamed a parent feels when the principal or the teachers call you and reprimand your child in front of you. And then for something like this. So I think maybe that could be a great bait to bring the parents on board and tell them that this is what we want to do so that your children have good relationships as they grow up. So maybe we could try and have an initial conversation, but as yet it hasn't happened. So probably that's a dream and a hope for the for the future. Sure. Thank you so much, Iqbal. I want to build on the conversation that we already had. And I want us to talk about you know, is there a story that you could tell us about, you know, a real life story of you being in a classroom with young people, at, you know, in your professional role as a sexuality trainer? You know, do you do you have a story for us? Okay, two stories. One was about, uh, like when the people traditionally say that, conventionally say that failures lead to success. So there was this one time I was uh, with a school and addressing these boys and as I said in my earlier conversation with you that the boys tend to be very rowdy and make a huge lot of noise and disturb the classroom proceedings while we are discussing with them and I remember that there was this school teacher he was also positioned in the class for a moment you know initially I used to wonder why they are there and then I thought it's good that they're there because they'll see what we're doing and they'll probably give feedback and say that, okay, it was not bad, good stuff or whatever, hopefully. So this teacher was there and at one point in the class, the boys began to, it was like getting out of hand. There was this one group engaging in a sort of rowdy conversation amongst themselves and every time I'd begin something, they would be on their own. So this teacher kind of finally lost his school and he went up to them and he got physical. I mean, he literally boxed that kid's ears or, I don't know, boxed him on the back or something like that, which was quite horrifying for me because here I am talking about, you know, respecting oneself and one's body and trying to be empathetic and telling the children in a way that I'm here to listen to you. And I'm not able to listen because of this happening and then this total physical uh, restraint, you know, on them. Of course, it quietened all of them down, but I was terribly uneasy after that. And I don't even remember uh, whether I could uh, sort of regain my composure and continue with whatever I was doing. But then I went back and, as I said, I tried to reflect on what could be done about this situation because this was not a one-off experience, it was happening almost every time. So the next day when I went back and I thought about why I was doing all this and what I need to do now to, to set things right. And 
I decided to take the route of uh, positive reinforcement. So I went back to the class and I told them that I thought I saw a good spark in each one of them and that I thought that they were really intelligent and said all good things, which I said from my heart because innately I do feel that all children are good, all children are intelligent, all children are lovable. So it wasn't as if I was lying to them or flattering them. And I said that I wanted to see the best in them that they could be. And I apologized on behalf of that teacher for what had happened. And I told them how it had disturbed me so much that I could not rest the entire day after that. And, uh, well, I won't say that it worked like magic or any such thing. It wasn't like a magic wand, but there was a perceptible change. And what happened was that if one or two of them were beginning to sort of get more noisy than permissible, sort of, that uh, were being disruptive, someone in the class would get up and say, Oi, chup karo, jao, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I wasn't having to do that. So that for me was a point that I thought that I need to work around this. But then again, this happens mostly when one is talking to boys and in a large group, because if they are less than 30 or 40, then it's it's okay. So this is like one of the tips, if at all, it could be useful. Because then the interaction and the eye-to-eye contact is easier with a smaller group. With the large group, then there's that anonymity and in one corner of the classroom, somebody's saying something and you're running there to answer another and things like that. The other interesting uh, thing which I remember very vividly, and this was, these were boys of class 11th, I think. Though again, this was a government school, but Some of the children were from a science background and generally those from a science background or who have taken up science somewhat are more vocal. And also there was a group in that class which was kind of little self-assured sort of and were able to engage more rather than just writing things down. And we were talking here about relationships. I had given them little sort of uh, case studies on slips of paper to each group and ask them to give a comment based on what aspect of that relationship was being talked about. So this particular group had been told that if, because we've talked about honesty in a relationship, and therefore if a girl who is your friend or whom you may be planning to date tells you that she's been in a relationship earlier, she's had a boyfriend earlier or something like that, what would your reaction be? So when they got this slip, and sometimes, you know, there's what we call the the Freudian slip that immediately the, the reaction which comes out at once is the real one. It's kind of before they knew what they'd said, one of these boys said, secondhand hair. And uh, so then there were a few sniggers and then one said, ah, characterless hair and all. So my expression was exactly what is yours at the moment because I also had kind of my eyebrows raised and trying hard not to look judgmental. But I was, you know, I said, oh gosh, here's something that really needs to be looked at. And then, of course, you know, after that came what were the socially accepted answers because 
they were smart boys and one or two of them said no no we'll sort of uh, take it in our stride and we'll say so what to kya hua but this thing about being second hand and characterless that really hit me hard and i had to of course then talk about it and i asked them there to list out what things are second hand so it was cars and clothes etc and i said so women according to you are just objects i mean that that's the basis of the of my objectives or my overall aim in sexuality training that if boys are going to look at women as objects just mere objects of their desire and use one and then go to another and think that they need somebody who is pure virginal blub and all that then we've really got a huge social issue on our hands we've got a problem on our hands so that's that's part of the sexuality training actually that i think is very important for me so when i do sexuality training it's not telling them again that you know what is reproduction all about because interestingly they all know it when i went to their class and i said so do you know anything have you been told uh, in your classes about um, you know reproduction and this was class 8th boys and they immediately said oh ma'am it's going to be taught to us next year and the book is class 8th and 9th together so they all knew chapter 9 we have to do this they all probably read it because they immediately came up to me and said here it is you know and they're waiting for me to tell them that so that's that's a need they have they want to know why shouldn't we tell them so as i said i've been taking more sessions with boys it so happened but when we would discuss with one another and what came up also was that boys were more interested in knowing you know things they would openly say that how do i have sex or i want to have sex or why do we have sex those were the questions that would come from the boys from the girls the questions would be more about an emotional involvement and things like being pressurized by a boyfriend into having sex and so what do i do now i don't have any percentage data on this but generally there was this difference that one noticed boys were very keen to talk and to understand about masturbation and they would ask questions does it cause weakness and things like that because there are also a lot of videos the internet is full of all kinds of information and misinformation girls didn't ask these questions and in fact uh, my co-trainer said that when she began to talk about this she herself i think was a little reticent she admitted and that the girls didn't seem to be interested to talk about it or were probably they felt it was too much of a taboo for them so again there is this little this kind of gendered difference again i think because with boys you know this whole idea of that control karna nahi kar sakte that's why they want to have sex all the time and with girls there's been so much repression that the idea of control of not being able to control doesn't only come up so whatever desires also they may have are kind of kept you know at that level of 
complete repression of sort of a denial of them in a way very interesting and i think because of the different kind of socialization of young boys and young girls a sexuality trainer is perhaps designing sessions differently to be able to meet the certain kind of learning outcomes and here i'm i'm curious about you know if you could talk a little bit about ipal you know when you're trying to prepare yourself as a sexuality trainer what does one need to become a sexuality trainer especially from a credibility point of view because like i said you know there's a certain sense of stigma and taboo around it for even schools or even parents to trust a sexuality trainer there is a certain kind of professional credibility or perhaps you know past work so how does one build a certain kind of career path in this see for me it wasn't so difficult because i was in chandigarh in the government schools i was doing these classes so to some extent certain credibility had been established because as i said that i retired from the government colleges uh, and uh, we had been working on gender issues etc so i think somewhere you know there was that which helped me along a little bit which others might find difficult or i myself might find difficult if i were to go to a place where i'm not known at all so somewhere my credentials as being a teacher for many years did help the second was as i said that i went through this training full fledged training course on comprehensive sexuality education and tarshi also gives a certificate to you so for somebody who's interested in this space i don't know of other organizations but i know of tarshi and their their uh, online it's an online module that i attended it was i think a three month course or something like that and with a lot of interactive sessions where you're asked to also respond in writing to a lot of um, the questions and again for me this whole idea of seeing the young people with respect empathizing with them being very sensitive to their needs or to their concerns or to certain issues that they may might have was all actually brought out very beautifully in that course designed by Tarshi because that's what they emphasized repeatedly also you know though i haven't addressed that issue in my sessions in detail but this the idea of uh, of being of a different sexual orientation for example gay or lesbian because then that again would need at least a full session or two with young people to sensitize them so we would only kind of possibly say it in passing in the class and say it with probably the sternest expression that i could get and say that you know if somebody has a different orientation it's perfectly all right and it's not something to be laughed at or to be mocked at so to that extent i would have said that i think that's also an issue that needs to be talked about a little more but since as i said that i'm not yet so comfortable in that space or have not trained myself enough with you know actual hands on experience to talk about it because i'm sure that would lead to many more no more questions so i think that's something also that sexuality education trainer would need to work on the tarshi course does address these issues but what one learns and then one learns hands on through one's experience uh, there's always a little difference there so 
in that sense, these are one or two of the, say, the hard tools that one needs to have. Other than that, as I said, that some people do feel that why do we have separate spaces, like separate for boys and separate for girls? Well, I just felt that I personally might feel more comfortable if I were to talk only to girls. And when I generally have discussions with my own boys about, you know, how I'm conducting these classes or something, I would come back. And uh, my son would tell me that they would have conversations with their group of boys, but generally not, you know, the girls wouldn't really be a part of it. So I felt that till as a society, we don't open up that much more as it is, you know, even co-ed schools, there also one finds that in a co-ed school, in a co-ed college, the spaces are gendered. In the co-ed colleges where we taught, we would find that the boys would be seated separately and the girls separately. So where is the mingling really happening. So the only time the meeting is happening is in a sexualized manner, which is a sad thing because there's much more to relationship between a boy and a girl than just sex. I mean, there's so much more in terms of friendship and sharing of ideas and emotions than just uh, the sharing of a sexual experience. I think that's very beautifully said that the more there are sexuality trainers and the more uh, learning spaces that work with young people invest, you know, in conversations like this. It's actually so little about sex by itself. And it's so much more about a more healthy, wholesome relationship with oneself and with one's peers. And, you know, the kind of world and the, you know, the journey that one is embarking on as a young adult. I think that's such an interesting way to look at it. And... Uh, also, uh, you know, sorry to interrupt, just uh, before I forget, you'd earlier asked about, you know, having conversations with parents and um, in the context of that teacher as well. It's also, I think, very important to have these conversations and sessions with teachers because I, I gave that instance of the teacher referring to them as dirty, gande bache hai. The attitudes of teachers themselves need to really undergo a change. If you permit me, I'll just relate one short anecdote which uh, stayed with me. And maybe, you know, these were sort of little seeds along the way now when I think about it, you know, and the dots getting connected. So this was um, my younger son was, I think, in the kindergarten class. And I get a message that uh, you have to attend the parent-teacher meeting. It's important. You have to meet this uh, the, there was a Punjabi teacher there and I was very apprehensive wondering now what's happened <laughs> every time one is called one knows that you're being summoned for some misdemeanor and there's my boy with me looking up and she says oh yeah I'll say this in Punjabi first and then translate it classwich. So I asked him, I said, uh, what did you say? Now, the first thing is at that age, they weren't really watching much TV. And especially the kind of TV that she would be thinking of because the only TV they watched was probably Tom and Jerry at that age. So he says, I only said uh, puppy because, and he said this in English to me, I only said puppy that a boy uh, next to me said, what is baby of a dog? And I said, puppy. So 
and now puppy in punjabi means kiss so he must have said puppy and then that boy may have you know meant it as a joke or may have meant it to be in kiss and then they must have all laughed and then this teacher must have asked him what did you say and he says i said puppy so she says kinna ganda bachcha hai now a kiss is being turned i mean something as innocuous as my son thinking about the baby of a dog is being turned into a kiss and then a kiss is being seen as something horrible something so bad that the parent has to be summoned for it you know and i made light of it to the teacher but the teacher looked at me as if i was probably the most <laughs> immoral parent <laughs> that she had ever encountered so i think a lot of our own attitudes as teachers need to be questioned and we need to reorient ourselves more sensitively more empathetically yeah absolutely absolutely and i think there's just so much work to do in this space that uh, i think the more i hear you know your stories and you know those experiences from uh, classrooms and yet uh, a part of me feels really happy to know that there are schools that are opening their doors to you know sexuality trainers and beginning to invest in conversations like this that there are parents who are beginning to support these kind of decisions that a school might be taking i think all of these are very positive signs ikbal my final question to you is there will be a lot of people who are now wondering that should they become sexuality trainers you know or some people have always been interested in it and therefore you know they're thinking about it what is a message that you want to give them for anybody who's very curious about this kind of a pathway as a facilitator as a trainer well i would think that it's it's as you said very crucial in today's times especially in today's times when we are trying to open up as a society when we are talking about a more equal gender equal society especially when gender is now becoming a much more fluid term so there are a whole lot of questions about sexualities and sexual orientations which i think we first need to understand for ourselves and then go out and talk to people because if we ourselves are muddled in our heads how much more difficult it would be for a young child who is grappling with it and as the stories are coming out today into the open we can see the the kind of trauma that people have been through for many many years of their lives and as parents what we want is we always talk about wanting our children to be happy so where is the happiness going to come from if at this very core of their being because we all un- feel that our sexual identity and orientation is also at the core of our being if that concern if there is a pain there and that's not being addressed so i think it would really be wonderful if more and more people tried to come into this space and i think the world is there open for them probably the doors may not open so easily and um, we don't use the word sexuality education trainers when we go and tell our the you know some of the in the schools we say that we are talking about relationships and about right to consent and we avoid using the word sex ed actually to tell you the truth because at the moment we're still carving our way in and so we've got to be quite 
diplomatic about the use of that word. It's seen as a red flag for many people. Wow, fascinating. (laughs) That is so fascinating. And I think that is really the world of irony that we are living in, right? Like, uh, but I also feel that, you know, it's not just diplomatic, it's actually strategic, because how else does one navigate a sociocultural system that would perhaps find it more convenient to entirely shut down conversations like this? I think in many ways, what you said is really, you know, the, the spirit of educators and teachers that sometimes I feel we don't acknowledge enough that this is their own bold way of rebelling against a system that isn't designed to work for young people, that isn't designed to work for, uh, you know, young girls, that isn't designed to work for marginalized communities. So, Iqbal, thank you so much for this absolutely incredible work that you are doing with your team and for bringing this conversation with us because I think we don't really talk about it. If you ask me, I think I can never talk about sex uh, to young people like or you know I'm trying to now think that would I ever sit down and have a conversation for example with my nephew I like to believe that today you've opened a door for me with this conversation so thank you so much for being on doing being doing thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share some ideas and concerns with you and hopefully get many more people on board so that young people can benefit Yeah, absolutely. Please do check out Iqbal on Spotify. Her podcast is called Hi Yejwani, a delightful uh, storytelling format. Uh, You will love it. Thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.